Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking a new approach to funding research, transnational education, the disability job gap, and the very future of higher education. Plus, we've got hidden history and a round of yes, but does it correlate? It is all coming up. If the default model that has been kind of sold to people for years, I mean, for decades, is you leave home and you go to a fairly traditional big university, I'm not sure that some of these other options that we might develop, that might be incentivised to develop, are going to address the problem of cost. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm Rachel Firth and here to sing the opening number from the Higher Education Policy Musical. As usual, we have three superb guests in York. We have CEO of University of York Student Union, Ben Villamy. Ben, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, so my highlight of the week is to do with Europe. Um, earlier this year, York and Maastricht universities launched a partnership to support research and education collaborations between the two institutions. And this week, York-Maastricht partnership announced its first round of funding, £2 million worth of research into initiatives tackling mental health problems, uh, diseases like breast cancer, improving global sustainability. It is good to have some good news about European collaboration. And in Hertfordshire, we have policy manager at Guild HE, Kate Wicklow. Kate, give us your highlight of the week, please. Um, so it was my birthday this week, ah, um, birthday. which means, thank you, um, and that means that I've been eating cake for breakfast for the last six days. <laughs> and finally, in Barnstable, we have Wonky's associate editor, Jim Dickinson. Jim, what was your highlight of the week, please? It is tempting to talk about OFS regulatory advice notice 15 and 16. But I won't. It it was my daughter's birthday this week. Daisy Dickinson was 10 this week. Uh, And the highlight wasn't so much the birthday, but to celebrate her birthday, she decided to attempt to play Fortnite for the first time. (laughs) And this coincided with Fortnite being taken (laughs) offline, which I thought was hilarious. Uh, Right. This week, we had the Queen's Speech, which featured a surprising amount of higher education policy. Most notably, there is a proposal for a new approach to funding emerging fields of research and technology. Jim, talk to us about this one. Now, (laughs) yeah, so we weren't necessarily expecting much uh, on HE in the Queen's speech, and then something appeared. Uh, So there will be a new funding agency that will fund emerging fields of research and technology, uh, and then the killer line, and it will reduce bureaucracy in research funding. Uh, So that was announced in the Queen's speech, a kind of cabinet level uh, new research projects agency. Uh, And and one of the things that that kind of comes alongside is that we're expecting a kind of big boost to R&D funding in the budget, which uh, in theory will be on the 4th of November. Um, there's a few things that are interesting about this. So, so if effectively, this is being modelled on DARPA. So every day is a school day, if you don't know what DARPA is. Uh, it's an agency of the United States Department of Defence that's responsible for the development of emerging technologies for use by the military. And the key thing about it is it's very close to government. So... Uh, If you think about the way research is generally funded these days at the moment, you've got ministers and civil servants 
put vague stipulations on what research money can be used for. They then pass it on to another agency, and then the agency runs a process by which you apply for the money, and you know you'll check that you spent the money well, and it appears in your bank account. And and that kind of distance from ministers is the is what's known in the UK as the Haldane principle. Uh, which was uh, re-enshrined in the Higher Education Research Act uh, a couple of three years ago. And that's the idea that decisions on individual research proposals are taken following an evaluation of the quality and their likely impact, uh, rather than, you know, kind of directly funded by ministers. Now, that's not to say that there isn't research that gets funded by directly by ministers. There's, there's, there's plenty of that. But the big chunk of uh, research funding that comes out from government kind of goes through this filter of impact assessment, peer review, and so on. Now, I guess the the important thing to say about this is <clears throat> enter stage left Dominic Cummings. Uh, and Dominic Cummings has all sorts of interesting views on uh, science and research and innovation. And he's on record as saying that he likes the idea of funding, and I quote, people, not projects. Uh, and he thinks that lots of research funding in the UK, particularly the universities, is out of control. Um, and what he wants to do is make sure, I guess, that there is, uh, you know, some more control over that. And, and, and he's framed that as, or certainly the Queen's Speech has framed that as, uh, less less bureaucracy, less form filling and so on. I guess the one thing I'd say about that is, can we think of any moments where the existing government has sought to cut through red tape and fund people, not projects, rather than uh, direct, rather than going through things like funding councils. Now, let's have a think. The new schools network, uh, the new route master bus, uh, the garden bridge, uh, Jennifer Acuri. <laughs> now, I, <laughs> I, I'm not convinced that this government has a brilliant record on this kind of bureaucracy cutting fund people, not projects thing. And if you look at those examples, the serious point is there's a really good reason why we have some distance from government on these sorts of decisions. Um, it is a, it's an interesting proposition, isn't it? Because I think there are pros and cons to it. So we, first of all, we'd like to say that we hope that there's a broad definition of science here and it's not just about space um, or digital, which does seem to be what Dominic Cummings is is kind of drawing on. Um, but and, and also, I suppose there are lots of different types of projects that government might want to kind of fast track research in. And I think that's perfectly credible. Um, but it can undermine some of the work that UKRI are doing. Um, and also, I suppose there is that that sense that when you're funding people, not institutions and projects um money can go to the usual winners um rather than being evenly distributed or positively distributed um across the sector um, and we've already seen that the vast majority of research funding goes to a very small number of institutions and that means that lots of smaller providers in the sector who are world leading in their areas aren't getting access to the same amount of money so there's there are definitely risks involved um, but I quite like the idea of funding going across political cycles rather than being attached specifically to parliamentary um, business. But the proof is in the pudding, as they say, and uh, we're not really sure 
um, what the government motivation for this funding is. I find it a little bit hard to be excited about it. And, and uh, it, dare I say, I'm a little bit suspicious of it. it. It feels a little bit like a theatrical technique to distract us from whatever's going on on stage left. Um, but I, and, I, and I think that, like you say, the framing of it as cutting through the bureaucracy feels like it's been framed to please an audience that isn't necessarily the institutions themselves, but perhaps the wider public. Um, and transparency will ultimately be the key, as, as Kate says. Yeah, and I think the other thing to say is when he says cutting through the bureaucracy, he, he, he's not necessarily, it's tempting, I guess, for uh, individual researchers and, you know, talented scientists and so on to think, ah, he'll be cutting through the bureaucracy I wade through. I'm not sure that's the bureaucracy he's getting at. If you look at his record at DFE, the bureaucracy he's massively keen on cutting through are things like, you know, civil servants and research councils. And, you know, look, look, you can take all sorts of views on this. You can take a view that that is a kind of very slow, expensive blob that slows things down and kills innovation. Or you can take a view that what all of that infrastructure does is provide assurance and make sure that research has impact and make sure that uh, research is valuable and that is properly peer reviewed and so on um and i guess to some extent it doesn't really matter where you fall on those two that the more interesting issue is if this starts to signal um a, a kind of longer term view from government that what we need to do in order to fund research in the uk is to get rid of this kind of big infrastructure that we have uh, around research funding and make it much more directed by politicians then we could be in trouble indeed i mean uh, for my two pennies i'm far more concerned that we've only used the name dominic cumming we've not used a uh, conservative policy we've not used uh, boris johnson uh, you know any elected official is uh, we've name checked Don- dominic cumming as if this is his policy which i think is incredibly worrying now let's see who's been blogging for us this week hi i'm robert liao also known as bobby i'm the former vice president welfare and community at king's college london students union and i'm currently studying an ma at goldsmith i've written about the winners and losers under the government's new graduate route as it stands presuming this government survives long enough to implement it the gist of it is that there are more winners than losers but only in the short term the scheme doesn't address current international students graduating this academic year and it doesn't improve long-term retention of talent and don't forget, we'd love to have your contribution on the site. If you'd like to pitch us a piece, just drop us an email on team at wonky.com with your idea and we'll be in touch. Now, next up, Universities UK and the Quality Assurance Agency and Guild HE have launched their consultation on UK transnational education. Kate, as this is co-produced by Guild HE and you are from Guild HE, I think it makes a lot of sense for you to kick us off on this one. Sure. Well, um, first of all, I'd like to say this isn't my direct policy area, but I do know a lot about TNE um, and I have been a QA reviewer in the past. So and I do know a little bit about it. Um, but essentially, um, Guild HE together with Universities UK and QA have launched this consultation on the future approaches to external enhancement of um, UK TNE provision. Um, and this was based on an advisory group that's met um, three times in the year, um, chaired by Alistair Fitt, who's the VC at Oxford Brooks. Um, essentially, the basic question that we're asking is what is needed to implement an approach to quality enhancement of UK TNE that strengthens the reputation of the UK HE sector and one that's also crucially economically sustainable um, for providers to pay into. So um, we know that TNE is a, a growing part of the UK HE market. Um, in 2017, over 690,000 students were studying for a UK award, um, either on overseas campuses or through distance learning provision. Um, and also DfE um, has estimated that UK TNE contributes over £610 million in exports. So this is really big business and something which we really need to take very seriously, even though there might only be um, a 
number of providers who are actively pursuing T&E provision. Um, so just to kind of quickly wrap up what the options are, um, option one is that is asking whether people believe that the current regulatory frameworks at the OFS um, and other funding councils um, have put together provide sufficient assurance um, of the standards of TNE. Or um, the second option is that we then need to reinforce that by some form of in-country review um, that continues to enhance as well as assure the quality of the provision. Um, that's the current practice that we have now. We have um, in-country review. And so really what we're asking is whether we think that we need to continue to do that kind of activity um, or whether the new regulatory landscape provides the assurances that we need. I guess increased regulation of that space uh, may make some of the advancements there a little bit more cautious, um, you know, because there will be fears about um, exactly how a quality framework for or a new quality framework and perhaps additional regulation in that space could could make it more challenging and perhaps a bit less attractive to to, to the institution in some ways. I, I think do wonder whether there is a tension between um, how we create quality measures and frameworks while retaining the agility um, of of academic courses to deliver in a way that suits the environment the context and the cohort and that that tension might perhaps be amplified for TNS courses yeah I mean I think there's some really interesting things going on kind of around the background of this I mean internationally the, the in theory the UK has you know very highly regarded higher education and I guess the argument is that one of the reasons that the UK has such high quality higher education is, you know, that, that it takes part in and has to some extent led some of the old quality assurance frameworks. What's interesting here, of course, is that certainly in England, that old quality assurance framework is gone. And now we have OFS regulating in a very different way to the old kind of quality assurance process. So this is a consultation about what goes on top of quality assurance, quality enhancement. And I described in the office the other day using one of my phrases that no one understands, which is wooden legs but real feet, uh, which is if, if you're concerned as a sector about the reputation, particularly of English HE, falling away because we're not now participating in traditional quality assurance, I guess the argument that's kind of hidden in this document is we probably still need to be doing traditional quality enhancement with visits and those sorts of things. And, you know, that all comes down to, in the end, whether or not you believe that it's crucially important for us to be able to demonstrate through the old quality assurance and quality enhancement and visits and you know peer review and so on process how good HE is rather than just looking at outcomes the one thing I'd say by the way about looking at outcomes is Gavin Williamson's letter to OFS the other week did talk about the need to for OFS to publish and look at international student outcomes but as I said on the site a few weeks ago that's actually quite tricky it's really difficult to benchmark uh, sort of uh, continuation rates because you don't know what the entry rates are on lots of TNE uh, and you don't know what the entry rates are on most interna- on, on any international students, really, in terms of benchmarking comparisons. And then the other thing is, how do you do meaningful salary benchmarks, which is the other big type of outcomes that people are looking at? So th- this idea that you've got a regulator in England now that doesn't regulate on the stuff, it regulates on the outcomes from the stuff, presents a real challenge when you look at TNE. And, and I guess, therefore, the question for the sector in this consultation is, given that, do you want to kind of add on top of this kind of very different type of regulation in England that the, the kind of uh, the, the assurance process in, in order to bolster the reputation of the sector and, and keep it where it is? And if any of our listeners have heard of the phrase 
real feet and wooden legs. Tweet us, email me, and I will send you a book. <laughs> no one else in the entire world has ever used that phrase. Um, yeah, so just going back on the data, I think there is a bit of a gaping hole um, with the international student data that we have, both those that study in the UK and those that study overseas. And I think the, the danger is, is that we are making decisions before we've put in the appropriate infrastructures to to collect NSS data, graduate outcomes data, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so... I think there are there are multiple issues with um, lots of different ways that we quality assure this provision. Um, but what I would say is that um, what we are really asking for is whether the sector believes that we should be maintaining a UK-wide approach to TNE quality assurance um, rather than just having different approaches for different countries. Every week we are delving deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar Mike Ratcliffe, here is the hidden history of HE. So if you look at the Robbins report, which stands as a, as a marker of where we were in, in early 1960s um, higher education in the UK, you'll find that there's a whole chapter dedicated for the Colleges of Education and Training of Teachers. Because when Robbins wrote, there were 146 colleges in the UK delivering teacher training. And they had 49,000 students, which is about a quarter of the whole of the higher education sector. And at that point, they were still dealing with the repercussions of some very serious manpower planning that the government had done and and planning for a huge expansion. There was talk about the number of trainee teachers needing to go up to 114,000 across the sector. So Robin spends a lot of time thinking about what is going to happen to all these colleges of higher education. There's a concern that many of them are too small, haven't got a critical mass in terms of what they're trying to do. So there's a discussion about whether they should become liberal arts colleges, whether they could develop in that direction. Robin suggests that they uh, move towards having a Bachelor of Education degree rather than the cert ed uh, that they have been offering. Uh, and the government swings into action with all its normal planning and um, foresight that, that puts everything together. If you look at the buildings built by these uh, county architects at this point, they look just like the new universities that are being put up. So you can put um, the Walsall campus of the West Midlands College of Education next to Lancaster or Warwick, and for the, you know, the shiny black and white photos, you wouldn't be able to tell them apart. They are doing the same kind of thing. They're developing a residential experience for students, but focused on teacher education. But by the beginning of the 1970s, all of this has changed. The James Committee looks at the future of higher education in, in teacher training, uh, and they suggest that what would be good is to have a, a dip HE route, because you probably only need two years of, of a general education before you go off and do teacher, edu- uh, teacher training. Uh, and that would also be a good way for the colleges to diversify. It's a way that they don't have to have the research expertise that you'd expect in the final year. So the dip HE is born as an idea, the idea that you could have a, a short stage um, higher education qualification that you could then top up with professional training. So it's the beginning of our first um, short cycle uh, award, uh, but also notes that the planning forecasts for teacher training have changed quite radically because people have counted how many children are coming forward and that the teachers aren't retiring and therefore there's a major shift in terms of the numbers that they think about. So they shift this idea that they will have about 100,000 down to about 60,000. So this is a tremendous change in terms of uh, manpower planning. Probably an argument for saying that government should never do manpower planning uh, again. So, uh, the white paper that Mrs Thatcher uh, puts out 
uh, a framework for expansion in terms of uh, education uh, has to deal with the fact that there are now 160 of these colleges, uh, but they are comparatively small and inconveniently located for development into larger general purpose, institution, purpose institutions. Um, some of them will be needed just for teacher education. Some might develop in other directions. Uh, and cheerfully, uh, this being a white paper, some must face the possibility that in due course they will have to be converted to new purposes. Some may need to close. And then sets about this extraordinary planned exercise uh, of which you can find loads of books complaining about because it's just done awfully of deciding which of the colleges are going to close and they work their way methodically through it they have to deal with the churches who are quite important in this area so there's discussions with the catholic board of education and the church of england who have a sense of which ones they want to keep going there's um, some thinking about where things are located because when they they were trying to fill in every available area and make sure they had a teacher training college suddenly that doesn't make sense uh, so there's some some interesting uh, shifts in terms of that there's local considerations which college is going to survive which is going to merge with the polytechnic so so here locally uh, there are three um, colleges of, of education Clifton College, Mary Ward and Newark. They all are in the running to join um, uh, Trent Poly but only Clifton College does. The others close outright and in Mary Ward's case uh, this is a, a Catholic college that's been put out in the, in the countryside um, near Nottingham. Um, it had only opened in 1969. And within three years, they were discussing having to close it. Now, they sold the site to the British Geological Survey, so that's fine. It's, it's site got used. But these kind of conversations go on. And brand new colleges are just closed down again. So it's just one of those monumental uh, failures. Now, some of the colleges that survive, uh, either through merger or just on their own, are the foundations of a, a wave of universities that we get um, in this century. So Chester's and Winchester's and Chichester's, the kind of cathedral town um, colleges of education. But the, some of the places that lose their um, colleges of education have never really got it back in terms of the development. So places like Grantham or Salisbury, they lose their college of education. They never get it back again. They, they're, they're left with a, a college of technology and if he college, they, do, they don't get a higher education presence back again in the same kind of a way. And it's a bit of a lottery how all that works out. But the prospect that the government grows a sector and then five years later contracts it desperately is just one of those sad little stories of, of how we've ended up in our current situation. Next up, we're going to talk about the disability job gap. But first, we wanted to let you know that the full lineup for Wonkfest has been released. Hosted over two days with 104 speakers and 54 sessions, Wonkfest is a must-attend for people working in higher education. At Wonkfest, we bring the sector together to discuss the biggest issues and tackle the great challenge of navigating what lies ahead. The festival is two non-stop days of ideas, new thinking, analysis and debate. You can choose what to focus on and build an experience that it will be the most valuable for your professional role and organisation. The sessions range from headline plenaries to masterclasses, from interactive workshops to fireside chats. You will never be too far away from a new idea or a useful insight. Old colleagues and new connections yet to be made from different and unexpected parts of university life. With an abundance of interesting things to do in see we honestly think it will be the most valuable two days out of the office you'll have all year if you are a wonky plus subscriber your tickets are discounted so head to wonkfest.co.uk to see the full lineup and book your tickets and we cannot wait to see you all there next the experience of disabled students in higher education the Office for Students has put out an insights report showing that attending university halves the disability job gap. And in related news, a Disability Students Commission, or the DSC, was announced by University's Minister Chris Gidmore in June 2019. 
The DSC sets out to make change happen by advising, informing and challenging the higher education sector to develop more effective models of support for disabled students, which will help them have a positive and successful experience at university. Ben, would you be so kind as to give us an overview of this, please? So the Office for Students reports uh, is titled Beyond the Bare Minimum, and it asks whether universities and colleges are doing enough for disabled students. Um, it's expected to show that attending university halves the disability jobs gap, but acknowledge that there are still some fairly serious gaps in access, attainment, student satisfaction, and even completion for disabled students. Um, as you say, that, that comes on the back of Chris Goodmore's announcement about, about the Disabled Students Commission, and in that sense, it perhaps feels like there is a much stronger agenda for discussion and action on disabled student experience than we've had previously. Um, I think it's particularly optimistic that, that, that both of those um, instances, the OFS report and, and, and the Commission, both talk about the need for student lived experience to be included in some of their work. Um, I do believe that proactive engagement with student voice on this agenda is really key. Mm. Um, uh, the OFS are currently recruiting six commissioners, um, including one student voice commissioner to represent perspectives of current and future disabled students. I, I suppose I'm left with a little bit of concern that it's almost impossible for a single student voice to represent the very diverse and complex needs of all students. Um, the other concern I have when I, when I think about this important agenda is about the extent to which we're still trying to retrofit access into the way that institutions operate. And when I talk to disabled students at York, they increasingly talk quite positively about how they're able to have conversations about their access needs and subsequent changes have perhaps been made. But there is a frustration that despite the fact that we are continually building new buildings, uh, designing new courses, opening new events, uh, building new students support services we aren't building access into the very design of those uh, activities we're always retrofitting and it feels like there's an opportunity here for a real cultural shift so that we more proactively consider access in design and build um yeah so i um sat on what was the disabled student sector leadership group a couple of years ago um and what we thought was very important was to put out this message that actually it's everyone's responsibility in the institution to take responsibility for ensuring that there's a, a really positive learning environment for disabled students regardless of their disability um, but what we do know is that there are some disabled students who definitely feel like they're not necessarily supported in the ways that they would like to be they don't feel like an individual they're given a um, an experience that is generic to someone with their disability um, and also quite a few students say that they're not particularly confident in asking for that additional help because they don't feel like they can or they should or in fact who to go to um, for that help so that's why when we created the group, we wanted to kind of instill this notion that having um, an overall view of how disabled students navigate through learning was much better than trying to create lots of pockets of individual practice. Um, of course, some universities are much better than others um, and some courses are also much better than others. So we know from um, some of my institutions that do a lot of creative arts, over 80% of students on those courses have dyslexia. So the whole pedagogical approach to teaching those students is definitely very mindful of their disability. Um, but I do think there is still that that disconnect between research and practice with kind of central student support services kind of managing the day to day activity. But it's actually academics teaching the programme that are making the substantial difference. So we really need to make sure that everyone is aligned and, and really understand the principle. 
thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think this is interesting largely because if you get into the insight brief itself, there's a real focus on the social model. And broadly, the social model is about arguing that if disabled students are finding something difficult to access, then the thing you need to fix is the thing and not the disabled student. Um, and, you know, I, I guess most people would understand that and agree with it in principle. And it kind of bleeds out into other access and participation areas where you look at the kind of deficit model. And, you know, what, what, what uh, OFS has been fairly consistent in saying, actually, is that uh, what you need to do is fix the environments in order to make everyone succeed rather than, you know, start with a kind of white, cis, male, able, middle class, on-campus undergraduate and then put in place sticking plasters and fixes for everyone that differs from those. And, you know, that makes sense in principle to lots of people. Where it comes unstuck in practice is some of the tougher things around investment spend. And, and in some cases, actual teaching and learning. So there's a really interesting little bit of the insight brief that, for example, looks at lecture capture. Now, you know, I've been to lots of students' unions and universities over the summer. There are still plenty of universities that aren't doing lecture capture at all. But crucially, there's plenty that have installed a system where it's entirely voluntary. And the reality is, and I understand that there are some concerns around kind of copyright and, you know, the way in which lecture capture might be used to break strikes and so on. Um, but, but if we're in a position where students can only request their lecture to be captured if they are disabled, that's your classic case of the kind of deficit model rather than the social model. So th 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 this stuff, I think, is much harder in practice than we sometimes give it credit for. Um, I, I guess the other thing I would say about the headline on this is that we do have to be a little careful about causation. So the kind of headline on the press release is that going to university uh, has this impact on disabled students. And, and to some extent, getting into university might be the thing that is selecting here in order to produce the employment outcomes rather than the university experience itself. Um, but nevertheless, you know, the, the, the figures are very interesting and, and, and really ought to be a kind of wake up call to universities to to shake up their practice. Yeah, I mean, just to say, I don't think the solutions around enhancing disabled student experience solely lie within the domain of the universities. And when I talk to disabled students at York, there are intense frustrations with the Disability Students Allowance Scheme. There are frustrations around restrictions on how NHS waiting lists work um, and the extent to which I can port my, my waiting list in one city to, to my home city, perhaps, or vice versa. There are intense frustrations about a wider social culture of disabled people having to prove that they are disabled and then that they are sufficiently disabled enough to warrant support. And, and the solutions to those things aren't certainly aren't solely within the power of a university. And I think that's part of the challenge really for the Commission is to try and link up disabled students' experience to, to wider you know, disabled life experience um, outside of our campuses. Now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's Associate Editor, David Kernahan. Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate, the podcast segment that firmly, at the time of recording, on the path to a possible agreement. Two of my very favourite things are the Hisa Estates record and coming up with spurious rankings. So I've got two questions for the panel this week. The first is whether total power consumption in kilowatt hours correlates with the overall number of graduates for the same year. And the second, which provider sits at the top of my spurious efficiency ranking using the least energy in kilowatt hours per graduate? Um, so I think it does not correlate. 
um, because facilities are very draining of power and that doesn't um, involve numbers of students. Um, and I think the provider at the top of the rankings is someone like Norwich University of the Arts. On the correlation, the answer is yes. R squared is about 0.5, which suggests a moderate correlation. But both variables correlate more strongly with the internal area of campus buildings in metre squared, so I'd suggest that this would be the link. And at the top of my spurious efficiency ranking, that would be Bishop Gross Test University, producing one graduate per 1,638,410 kilowatt hours. Data is from the Heaster Estates and Student Record, so covers the whole UK, though in the ranking I've omitted providers with less than 100 graduates. And where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. And finally, as we are on the verge of Wonkfest, where we'll be talking about all the big issues, and of course we have Chris Kidmore coming, which means we have been thinking of all the big topics um, that are going on in HG at the moment. So, uh, Jim, why don't you uh, set us up with this one? Yeah, so, I mean, it's really tempting when you work uh, somewhere like Wonky and you put out a thing called The Daily to think quite short-termist, but... Uh, over the past few years, obviously, we've been in this demographic dip and people have been scrabbling around for student numbers, particularly home undergraduates. Uh, but of course, over the next 10 years, one of the big articles that we published on the site last year was some analysis from DataHG that showed that actually demand is about to significantly increase. And, and that presents a different set of problems. Uh, crucially, if demand increases at the sort of rate that DataHG are predicting, and there's two big things going on there, which is birth rates... Uh, and the number of women that entered higher education in the late 80s and early 90s. And remember, the key determinant of whether or not you apply to university is whether your mum went. That means demand is about to rocket. If you then add to that the need to equalise uh, access to higher education between the most likely to go and the least likely to go, uh, that gives you all sorts of really interesting problems in three or four years. Now, you could envisage a scenario where the government finds the money to pay for all that, uh, uh, that will be particularly tricky for the Labour Party if it's going to pay for all of that, but it will still be pretty tricky for the Tories if they're paying for a large chunk of that. And even if you decided it would be a good idea to pay for all of it, there are plenty of people who are complaining that there are too many people going to university, too many people doing pointless degrees. Toby Young is wandering around saying that universities are left-wing madrasas. Um, and if you look at cities that have got a university, look how expensive it is to rent right now it might not be a really good idea to persist with a residential model that keeps ripping people out of poorer communities and putting them into cities where it's impossible to rent and where they don't return to those communities so there are really big strategic questions facing this kind of demand curve in the next 10 years and you know i think it's interesting to say to ourselves okay if, if it was up to us what would we do what well- I guess I'd, I'd prefix my answer to that by saying that I, I absolutely agree with Jim that there is a risk that if we just continue to squeeze an extra 20 people into every classroom, accommodation block, bus and refectory, then the current system breaks and we damage the experience of, of, of the existing student populace, never mind the growing market that, that, that wants to be uh, inside the classroom. Um, so we have to look at delivering in different ways that are increasingly flexible and agile. And, uh, you know, I, I, I guess some of that's about the existing migration of, of, of some learning 
learning and teaching into distance learning and online learning. But 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 above and beyond that, I think it's also about you know increasingly increasing agility and course delivery, delivering with different partners in different ways uh, over different timescales. Um, look looking at you know um, moving away from a simple are you full time or, or, or part time and maybe in, increasingly creating complete new ways of learning uh, alongside your your family commitments, your job commitments, uh, your, your international travel, and so on and so on. So I think um, that one of the first things we need to do is square that circle over supply and demand. So we know that there are going to be a large number of 18-year-olds entering the system with aspirations to undertake higher education. And we're also currently now battling that narrative that there are too many graduates. So we need to kind of work out what that centre ground looks like. Um, I think one of the things that we could, should and must do is improve the information, advice and guidance to young people to make all of their options completely transparent. Because I think at the moment, um, lots of young people are kind of coasting into university because they think their only two choices are to get a job or to go and do a bachelor's degree. Um, And that's definitely not the case currently. Um, But also in order to make those um, other options more attractive, we need to really think about what the funding mechanisms for those other options look like and streamline them a little bit because at the moment it's incredibly complicated to work out how much it's going to cost you to do a degree apprenticeship um, as opposed to a HND in a college as opposed to a full bachelor's degree and at the moment they are three very different funding mechanisms potentially um, the level four and five review um, that government is currently consulting on proposes one example of how you can bridge some of those gaps. Um, but there are definitely others. Um, but the other thing that I worry about is that if we force um, institutions and students to make choices about how they learn, um, I worry that there's going to be some kind of um, WP backlash on some of those things because is the learning the most important part of the university experience or is it going to university and meeting lots of people because actually you it is a completely different experience going um, to a local provider rather than a big campus um, or doing it online. I think it's interesting because you know I absolutely don't blame Ben and Kate for saying the things that they have said but what I think is interesting is that we tend to think when we think of this problem in terms of additional options and either giving students more data to make the other options more attractive or funding and incentivising institutions or other providers to create those other options that can go on to look attractive. The, the problem, I think, is this. If the default model that has been kind of sold to people for years, I mean, for decades, is you leave home and you go to a fairly traditional big university, I'm not sure that some of these other options options that we might develop that might be incentivized to develop are going to address the problem of cost and cities being full and if cost and cities being full hits at some point we've got to decide who to say no to now if you think about what Orga was doing really that was a very very complicated way of saying here's some people that we could say no to and here's the development of some other options but you know, what What do we know about the implementation of Augur and the debate around Augur? No one wants to look like the enemy of opportunity. No one wants to put a cap back on. Uh, and certainly I know loads of people who moan about the marketisation of higher education, who when you then say to them, OK, shall we put a cap back on, suddenly get very nervous because it's easier to critique it from that point of view than to say, no, I'd like to stop some people going or stop some people doing certain things. The reality is, I suspect that if we don't, proactively as a sector decide who should come and who shouldn't come actually what will happen is the unit of resource will just get cut and cut and cut and then we're back to Ben's opening point which is we end up with the experience being significantly diminished. I mean I agree with everything you just said but the problem is is that 
that if you start cutting numbers, we know that that dramatically decreases the equality of opportunity. Um, And so all of the work that we've done around access means that those students would then be less likely to hit those benchmarks. So we need to do something different to make that more equal. I I think that's what I mean when I talk about new collaborations and partnerships, that that, that maybe the the classroom of the future isn't even on my campus. Maybe it's in my local community centre or or, or maybe it's an extension of my school or or of my workplace. So, So this isn't about just migrate the whole lot on online it isn't about um, build my institutional empire further it's, it's about work with different institutions perhaps that aren't even educational in purpose um, to create new relationships new spaces new places all of which can help me deliver more learning and teaching more research with more people I mean certainly a couple of things I've been thinking about are that, that if you look at the kind of economic bifurcation between towns and cities that have got a university and towns and cities that haven't um, if we really do need to build 30 or 40 new universities then we probably should be looking at building 30 or 40 new universities in the same sorts of towns and cities that um, you know Boris Johnson has been saying he will throw money to uh, that have been left behind you know if you combine some of the efforts in uh, housing and local government and in department of health and in the department for education you could have a fairly big exciting vision around the building of new universities uh, around the country and you could do some interesting things around funding colleges too and in a way that's what Orga was getting at. But the other thing I've been thinking about is we, we have a really kind of binary debate around commuter, commuter students and residential students in, in, in this country. And I understand why. But, you know, if you talk to lots of postgraduate students in some providers, they have a much more hybrid experience where, you know, block teaching, they will stay in that place for three or four days at a time, do lots of kind of social stuff as well as the kind of teaching stuff and then network online when they're not there. And, and I wonder whether, you know, there's a future that addresses some of this stuff about the cost of the residential model and what it's doing to towns and cities, where rather than this bifurcation between the two options, you could have a kind of normal undergraduate experience which involves block teaching, staying in a kind of educational camp for four or five days, doing lots of interesting kind of enrichment and extracurricular stuff, but not necessarily living in that place. And that would involve all sorts of changes to academic administration and the way in which buildings are run and the way in which student accommodation is managed. Yes, it would be much more like a hotel. Um, But I think we do have to explore some of these options quickly because if at some point the caps are reintroduced, I think Kate is absolutely right, that puts real pressure on the kind of social mobility and access and participation agenda and we'll need the options for, for people who don't therefore then make it in under that cap to be kind of coherent and exciting and enriching and brilliant. So that is about it for this week. To find out more about anything we've discussed today, you'll find the links on the episode page at wonky.com where you can also leave your thoughts and comments. And don't forget, you can subscribe to us automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show in your favourite podcast directory or you'll find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. So thanks again to our guests, Ben, Kate and Jim to everyone at Team Wonky for making the show happen and of course to you for listening right to the end and until next week stay wonky